Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Director of Outreach here at the Naval Institute. With me is my usual co-host, retired Captain Bill Hamlet, the Deputy Editor of Proceedings Magazine. Ward, it's great to be here today. Great to see you again. How was your Thanksgiving? It was fantastic. A little bit of planes, trains, and automobiles. Trip to New Hampshire to see mother-in-law, mother, brothers, sisters, driving a U-Haul back, uh, you know, through Pennsylvania and everything. But uh, I, I can't complain too much. So it was lots of good turkey. Lot, great to see relatives and friends. Fantastic. So I, I, I was down in Virginia Beach, uh, where I served most of my Navy career. Uh, my littlest brother lives down there. My son came up from Camp Lejeune. Um, so it's great to go back uh, and visit, uh, which arguably my one of my hometowns, if I had one, you know, besides Annapolis, it would be Virginia Beach. So it's always fun to go go down there. And the Eastern Shore Way is a great way to get back and forth from the D.C. slash Annapolis area down to Virginia Beach. Yeah. Avoid 95. Yeah, well, I, you stay off of 95 in any case. But what's cool is for the last half hour of your trip, you can see Virginia Beach because you're on that, you know, yeah, bridge the, tunnel the there. That's, tunnel. that's super long and pretty cool and never seems to be crowded. So anyway, we weren't didn't have a show last week because of the Thanksgiving break. And uh, we had some uh, a couple of things happen in current events. Uh, one of the things uh, was this skywriting situation uh, with the growler out of NAS Whidbey. Um, a lot of discussion on social media and aviation discussion boards um, about this uh, this circumstance. Um I inaccurately predicted that they would get hammered um, from our, our good friend and, uh, and interview subject a few months ago, uh, the air boss, Admiral Shoemaker. Um, I don't want to say he let him off easy, but um, they got what you would objectively say uh, was a light punishment relative to what they could have received over the course of this FENAB. And FENAB is the term, which is Field Naval Aviators Evaluation Board. Um, so long story short, they got, let's call it six months probation. Yeah, this um, is for drawing a piece of uh, male anatomy in the yes, sky. Yes, yes. Uh, That's why I'm just calling it skywriting right. for the sake of our up over, PG uh, audience up here. Up over Whidbey Island. Yeah. Yes, got, yes. Got I'm sure of- everybody's familiar with what we're talking about, certainly the people who watch our show um, or who listen to the podcast. So they got six months, both the pilot and the electronic uh, warfare, officer. Warfare, warfare officer got uh, six months probation, loss of their NATOPS quals, a few other uh, situations there. The pilot is about to roll to go to one of the training command squadrons. So part of the punishment is they have to give a lecture to the Whidbey, NAS Whidbey community, um, the aviation community, not the greater Whidbey community, um, Oak Harbor or whatever. So um, in, in the base theater. Yeah, in the base theater. Assemble everybody. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and mea, how, how mea culpa. I, mea culpa. Right. Kudasai. Um, but the other thing that's uh, interesting um, is the pilot, when he rolls to his new command um, at Meridian, um, has to give the same lecture to the both the instructors and the student population down there. So it reminds me of when somebody gets uh, – hammered for a DUI event, um, you know, uh, and, and maybe somebody even, you know, uh, there's some catastrophic results of being DUI, and they have to do this sort of high school gym tour um, as part of their punishment in, in in the wake of that. So that's kind of the thing that I find it analogous to. A um, lot of sort of uh, attitudes and, and opinions floating around on social media within the community, um, I've heard the term urban legends, uh, folk heroes been attributed to uh, these two guys. So 
Um, you know, I'll, I'll stay out of it. What my opinion is, I'm old. Um, I was the angry young man. Um, and I think anybody, any of my CEOs in the early days would have definitely said I was the most immature guy in the ready room. Um, but, you know, um, I'm older now and I have a different perspective. But so the, the good news, I think, for these these folks is they they get to keep their wings, keep flying. Certainly in the Fit Rep 500, this, this, they probably didn't break out as uh, top of the pack. You know, these aren't the, the wrapped guys, as we say in the business. Right. Um, Ex- but, expect, expecting a, uh, you know, a great Fit Rep as you leave the squadron, maybe not so much. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. So uh, I will say kudos to... Um, Emma Shoemaker for a balanced response. You know, um, it, it, I think it would have been easy uh, to, to hammer him. Um, and in the wake of what was a high impact um, um, social media footprint, um, you know, you could have you could have overreacted, and he did not. So, so uh, you know, that's why he's he's the great leader he is. Uh, very proud of him. Known him since we were. 18, you know, and he's always been that guy who underreacts. And so good, good for him. For classmate that. of yours. Yeah. Classmate right. and a uh, guy I've known uh, for, for some time. Um, and so I hope that the JOs appreciate that and, and don't misuse right. uh, the example set by the, the punishment and how it was meted out. Um, okay. So enough on that subject. Um, what else we got before we turn to our guest? Well, I would just like to you know point out that uh, it's always a great day working here at Beach Hall uh, on the Naval Academy grounds. We have an unbelievable view out our window of the Severn River and part of the Naval Academy, Nimitz Hall, etc. Uh, and you never know who's going to come and visit us. Uh, and today we had uh, the extraordinary pleasure of meeting Senator Jim Webb, uh, former Senator Jim Webb and uh, Naval Academy graduate, class of 68, uh, wrote for proceedings, wrote uh, you know several books. He's a, a controversial figure because of his stance uh, 40 years ago on you know women in combat. We've talked about that on the podcast before. But Senator Webb came by, uh, visited the Naval Institute today, was here, walked around all the floors, the you know the press, uh, the periodicals department, the library. Everybody met met everybody. It was it was uh, it was a pleasure to uh, you know to see him here. And uh, again, you you never know who you're going to bump into in Beach Hall. Uh, notable, quotable, you know, famous, infamous, uh, you know, really <laughs> some, some um, you know, impressive people. And yeah. It, no, know, it's like it's an nice. ESPN commercial, right, um, where the sports stars are, you know, walking in and out of the cubicles. That's kind of how it is here in Beach Hall. Um, so if you're in the greater Annapolis, D.C. area, come say hello to us. Uh, uh, even if you don't have yard access, give us a heads up and we'll try to get you aboard. And, uh, and especially if you're a member of the Naval Institute. If you aren't, that's easily remedied uh, by going up usni.org and, and joining. Um, some cool holiday discounts happening right now around membership. Um, so, yeah, that's amazing. You know, just another day in our life around here in, in, in the, at the headquarters of the Naval Institute. A yeah. um, couple other things to point out. Um, uh, you know, one of the uh, tragic pieces of the news over the last week or so uh, was the uh, the Argentinian submarine that appears now to have been lost at sea. I don't know that uh, they have officially made that call, but our, an Argentinian diesel submarine sank off the coast of Argentina out in the Atlantic uh, about two weeks ago now. Uh, the U.S. Navy has been part of the rescue and the search and rescue attempt down there. Um, it it uh, reminded me of uh, an event that happened in 2005 when I was a naval attaché uh, to Russia. Um, the Russians had a s- small seven-man submersible that got caught on the uh, ocean floor off the coast of the Kamchatka Peninsula, and the U.S. Navy's uh, deep submergence unit 
which uh, at the time was commanded by a classmate of mine, uh, Kent, Kent Van Horn, uh, flew out on a C-5 on a moment's notice. Those guys are like, they're like, uh, you know, JSOC, uh, but for a uh, search and rescue mission uh, for submarines. They flew out on a C-5, landed in uh, Kamchatka, got on a Russian uh, buoy tender uh, with a, a, also a, a British team uh, and effected a rescue. So I know that uh, I tried to contact Kent uh, for our news uh, guys uh, at USNI News who were following the story of the Argentinian submarine. Uh, I could not reach Kent, and I suspect it's because he is uh, still working in that in that uh, submarine rescue uh, world uh, for a company now that does that work for the Navy or with the Navy. And I suspect he's in Argentina right now. But uh, uh, our, our thoughts uh, and prayers are certainly with the members of that submarine uh, Argentina is a longtime friend of the of the United States uh, and their Navy of our Navy, uh, and with the family members who are wondering, you know, what was the fate of their of their loved ones. So, uh, a tough day in the history of the uh, of the the world navies and the Argentinian Navy uh, especially. Well, the uh, regular viewers and listeners to the Proceedings Podcast have uh, come to uh, really enjoy our banter, of course, but. I think you'd agree, Bill, the best part of the show that's emerging is our guests. Definitely. And this week is no exception. So on the hotline here with us is Commander Tom Ulmer, who is a fellow, uh, uh, a Naval Institute slash CSIS fellow. He's a Gator Navy sailor. Um, We wanted to talk to him uh, about some of the lessons learned from the uh, collisions at sea. We've discussed this topic uh, 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 a number of times on the show, and uh, Tom has some uh, really cool insights for us, so we're very happy. Tom, thanks for joining us here on the show. Lord and Bill, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for inviting me to to uh, talk with you this afternoon. That's great to have you. And, and uh, Ward, I'd, I'd like to mention that uh, Tom was the commanding officer of the USS Fort McHenry based out of Mayport, Florida, before uh, starting his uh, fellowship year at, at USNI and CSIS, uh, and he is also a member of the Naval Institute's editorial board. Yes, I am, and actually, that's been a that being a member of that editorial board has been an enlightening experience. Just kind of seeing the quality. I mean, you see it um, when you read the magazine, but seeing the quality that comes in on a daily basis, especially with the competitions and everything like that that's out there, the, the great writing. Um, that uh, our sea services are doing every single day. It's just a, in the discussions actually that come up afterwards during the editorial board, there's some of the, the best uh, discussions I've had in a long time, speaking on strategic, tactical operation. It doesn't matter what we're, you know, it's just how can we make the sea services better? What are the discussion points that we need to have? And um, what, where, do the, where do we need to focus our efforts? So it's, uh, it's been a great experience. So you bring up a great point, Tom. If I was listening and I'm an 03, 04, or, uh, you know, a, a chief, master chief, um, I've never contributed to proceedings. Um, what what are some of the lessons you've learned about the process that could maybe assuage fears, or uh, you know, wh- since you've been on the editorial board? I guess my biggest one is just write. Um, write about what you know, about what you see. Your opinion does matter, um, and sometimes it, you know. You, Sometimes we're afraid to write the first words on the paper, but as soon as we get them written, the the content just flows. And I'm going through that myself. You know, I've been writing a couple of different things over the last couple of days, thoughts that I've had for the last couple of months. But um, there's no subject really that's out there that's not that you shouldn't touch. Um, 
especially like I said, that unique uh, perspective, write it. Don't, you know, a lot of us are also afraid of the retribution and things like that that comes back and um, don't be afraid. You know, if you look back across the, the many years um, of the, uh, of Proceedings Magazine and, and its history and things like that, a lot of the controversial issues that have come about through our naval services um, were discussed there or they were brought to light or, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the leaders that we've had started out as young midshipmen, as you know, ensigns and so on, writing. And you got to write because that's that's how you get your opinion out there. And it, it might, you know, it, you never know what's gonna what's gonna spawn off from that. And it might, you know, be the leading change for uh, for our naval services. Well, you can change the world, right? I mean, that's what's happened over Absolutely. over the years. So, the the other part about that, as you talk about people having maybe a, a bit of. Uh, concern about how it could play out the the board itself um sort of underwrites um the those concerns in terms of vetting the idea or making sure you get the thought complete uh, you know have you seen some of that with the exchanges between the board members about you know here's the topic um what else did the author leave out? Is there something where he's just completely wrong and he's he's you know going to show his ass or whatever you know it, it is there? Are you seeing something in that process that that again would uh, should mollify any fears of a first time writer? Absolutely, I think that discussion that we have around the table and having such a diverse group of people around that table has really helped. Having Coast Guard, Marine, Naval Service, and all the different warfare areas in, involved kind of gives it in, in, um, both officer and enlisted. So it's not you know just one side. Um, we have all those different perspectives coming in, so we, we are looking for that. We're looking to make sure that, yes, is, is the subject complete? Um, hey, do we need to look at this a little bit more before we publish it? Can we go with the editorial staff and make this? Um, or, hey, have you thought of it in this terms? Because these are the questions that are going to be asked, um, just to make sure that, that the subject is, is full. And we're not trying to edit it for the, for the author. We're not trying to change the author's uh, intent, what they're trying to write. We're trying to make it a more full um discussion so that you know they can look at it when you write a a thesis or something like that you're looking at it from all different angles and you're coming up with that that um, opposite approach we're also looking at that this way and it's just having that discussion and then getting it back into the editors and then possibly you know a lot of the stuff we get we don't even touch it's just that good um some things just need a little bit of tweaking and that's and so we like to have those discussions and pass them back then to the authors and and maybe that's hey something that they hadn't thought about so yeah, no, the editor, the process that everything goes through, it's just, it's amazing. I had never looked at it before. Uh, I just thought, okay, hey, you submit, and then uh, um, I know the things that I submit, even when I, I give them to my friends, like, hey, have you thought about it from this perspective? And I had a friend did that recently to me, and I said, hey, got this. You know, you, you're talking about this specific area. Has, has there been any research done on that? And if so, it's probably, it'll strengthen your argument if you talk about that. So that, those kind of things. Yeah, we, we on the professional staff, uh, our, our editor-in-chief, my boss, Fred Rainbow, likes to call our editorial board part of the secret sauce uh, that makes proceedings as good as it is, right? Um, and we look at our editorial board as a focus group. You know, we've got uh, E-9s from uh, Marine Corps and uh, Navy. Fleet, Fleet uh, Master Chief Kingsbury is a very, very active participant in the editorial board, uh, all the way up to O-6s. Uh, Navy and Coast Guard 06s on the board and uh, uh, you know with a broad 
um, depth and breadth of experience. And when they read an article that comes in that's submitted to us, uh, they you know they can provide uh, you know insight onto what is new, what's being discussed, what's tactical, what's you know maybe there are classified parts of this discussion that um, make some of the author's points moot. And you know we we don't have to talk about the classified stuff in an unclassified uh, setting, but we can help the right. author. We can help the author hone the argument so that what he's saying in an unclassified magazine isn't uh, out of you know out of sync with what is the whole story, perhaps, right? And uh, you know it's exactly. just it's great to have that that focus group that can help hone a piece, and then we as editors, when we start working with the author. As we take a 3,000-word manuscript and, and whittle it down a little bit to 2,400 words, 2,500 words, and we uh, are tightening it and trying to strengthen it, we always look at the comments that were written by the editorial board members who say, hey, this is a great piece, um, you know, but the real story starts on page three, right? And so we'll look for that thing on page yep. three that we want to make the lead rather than waiting until we're, you know, 800 words into a piece. And that strengthens it. And almost always uh, our authors will come back and say, boy, you know, thank you. Um, you, you helped me tighten this. You helped my, make my arguments even stronger than I knew that they were. So it, it's great. And the editorial oh, yeah. board is a huge part of that. Well, the other thing I've seen with the editorial board is um, be, not not just between classification and unclassification, but it's sort of the big picture context. So what the editorial board does is keep somebody from publishing something that's dead on arrival because they're talking about something that's already been solved or that's a non-issue for reasons that the author didn't know. Right, very true. You know, and it's not to say that their thesis is completely flawed. It's just to say that they can provide some insights that'll make it – uh, have legs uh, beyond what they yeah. maybe uh, can understand through their the myopia at the unit level. Right. Um, that's what I've seen is I've sat on the outer ring um, during the editorial board from time to time. And that, that to me is the greatest value, you know. Um, so, Tom, we, we wanted to talk to you about um, some of the findings um, as a result of Fitzgerald McCain collisions a few months ago. Yeah. The official Navy report is on the streets. Um, and we've chatted about that in a previous podcast here. Um, so what are some of your, uh, thoughts, uh, both strategic and tactical about how, um, the Navy, if not surface warfare will change in the wake of those two mishaps? I think, uh, the two, the two biggest ones, I think are pipeline, um, which when I talk about the surface warfare pipeline, I talk from the time you graduate um, and through captain major command. Um, I think that if you look at the report, there are several different places where, you know, they talk about training, you know, they, of course, went through the doc, uh, sorry, they went through the entire uh, doctrine, operational training, all that, um, on OPS, sorry. Um, and they, uh, they cut off things, but the training side of it, I think is, is one of the things that we really have not focused on a lot. We have, I mean, in some ways, but we really haven't focused on the amount of training, the amount of time underway, um, kind of more towards the way that the aviators do it. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more about that later. Um, and then how our pipeline itself should look to make sure that we have the right amount of experience going forward in our watch standing, in our department heads, in our captains. Um, and I think that's, that's one of the things that's really going to come out of this um, is, is our training. I think we also 
have to take a step back and look at our operational scheduling. Um, we we started out uh, 20 years ago, 600 ships in our Navy, a little over 20 years ago, and we were operating about 100 ships underway every single day. And now we're 300 ships, not even, and we're still operating 100 ships underway every single day. Uh, so that share the wealth is not there anymore. Everybody's that, that, being that's, that's a very third of our fleets underway. Every single day. Tom, that's a key point that, you know, a lot of uh, civilian friends of mine have asked me, you know, how does this happen? And, you know, kind of what what uh, over Thanksgiving time, I got a few questions from family and friends, you know, hey, the, the Navy had these two horrific collisions and a couple of groundings and, um, you know, what's going on? And uh, and I brought up that point that, you know, in in 1987, when I was commissioned, we were on our way under President Reagan towards a 600 ship Navy. We never quite got there. Um, but as you said, right. you know, 100 ships underway on a on a given day was about average. And now here we are. Uh, now it's 30 years later uh, with 277 odd ships in the Navy. And we're trying to maintain 100 ships underway on a given day. And and, you know, that's twice as hard. It's twice as hard on the force as it was with the 600 ship Navy. Exactly. And somewhere something's got to give. And unfortunately, as we've seen recently, that readiness is the is the issue that get, that gave. I mean, if you look back over the last 10 years, um, we've had, the surface Navy has had 15 either groundings, elisions, or collisions. Um, and compared to our uh, commercial brethren, that's who are at sea more than we are, that's significant. Um, and, you know, when we, especially when we lose lives, um, there's there's no reason that we should be doing that, especially never should lose lives. Um, in peacetime, in a training evolution. Right. Hey, hey, Tom. So, uh, you you uh, mentioned in a in a conversation and uh, in an email before the we started the podcast, um, the the difference in the pipeline for you versus you know current SWOs or or SWOs who worked for you when you were uh, commanding a ship. And so, how did absolutely. you know when you when you uh, got commissioned and then went through surface warfare school? Um, how did it differ from what it has been happening for the last, you know, 10 years and how has it changed in the last 10 years? And how did you see that in terms of impact on the, the level of readiness of individual junior officers, ensigns showing up to your ship, ready to, to be J-O-O-D, ready to start their, their uh, you know, pin qualification process? Yeah, so... Uh... Um, it's one of the discussions that's come up, and it was brought up in the comprehensive review as well, is that uh, when I went through, we, you know, we like to say that even when, when I was an ensign. Um, when I was an ensign, though, we, we had six months of school. Uh, we went up to Newport, Rhode Island, immediately upon graduation. Um, we had a robust training pipeline um, where we, we learned navigation. We learned engineering. We, I, I learned more than just the difference between this is a gas turbine engine and this is a steam engine. You know, I went up and I actually had some pipeline training where I spent two weeks learning nothing but the steam plant engine before I ever showed up on board my ship. I learned administrative um, skills, for example, to prevent a maintenance system. I could write the boards on that and tell you each of the different things and sit there and, and tell you how to maintain all the equipment that I had. And I was going to engineering, so you know, for us, that was a very significant part of that. Um, we, we Basically, we came away from that six months when we walked on board the ship, I could, I, at every job you go into, I'm not going to say I walked on board that ship and boom, I could immediately do my job because you can't. Even all the way up through command, 
um, you spend some time, first of all, getting used to the seat, but then also learning all the different things about your job, especially as an ensign. You know, it doesn't matter where you go. You, you're, you're learning. Um, but I spent 12, uh, four, I had 12 simulators that were four hours each, so 48 hours worth of simulators where I was either the officer of the deck, the junior officer of the deck who was making phone calls, or the conning officer, or I was working in combat where, you know, that's 48 hours of training that, um, yes, they do get simulators still today, but not nearly to that amount of time. So I understood I could do a, a maneuvering board. Um, when I was given a call up on Fleet Tac that said, hey, here's your operational signal, execute, I could uh, I could go to the ATP, pull it off the shelf, boom, look it up. Or many, you're not supposed to have them memorized, but we you know, knew what most of them were. And you could you know, decipher it and then put it on a maneuvering board and tell the offset, this is exactly what we need to do, and then execute it. Um, so that you, there were a lot of those basic level things. You know, basic, if you're going through your, your um, PQS, your 100 and 200 level uh, PQS items for most of the things that an ensign has to go through were already done. So that we could just focus on the on the advanced level, the 300 and 400 level things. Hey, where so Tom, you know, what for a while there we like to? Oh, go ahead. Tom, what what year did uh, did that six month SWA school disappear? What year did they they get rid of that and sort of uh, basically replace it with what has become known as SWAS in a box, which was you know you're going to get OJT and you're going to do some computer based training. When did that happen? It was about. In, in the mid 2000s, 2001, 2002, somewhere okay. in that time frame. Because when I left, when I left ship in 2000, people were still going through SWAS. When I came back in 03, they were not. Um, so sometime in that time frame, and I think the biggest shock that I had—I I think I talked about it with you—is the biggest shock I had was, with, you know, people walk on board the ship, and yes, if you go to the Naval Academy, if you go to ROTC, you've spent time at sea during summer. Um, if you go to Officer Candidate School. Um, they had YPs. You know, when you're down at Pensacola, and I was stationed down there for a while, you'd see the YP every Thursday afternoon going out with the officer candidates out there driving ships, learning, you know, hands-on that they've done that. You get that during summer training. You really get that at the Naval Academy. But now you were having um, ensigns come to the ship, officer can't, didn't matter which commissioning source, but they didn't, They yes, they had some experience, a little bit of information, but nothing that they really could grasp their hands on. So they spent their entire day, first of all, learning, um, and then trying to learn their job, and then standing wash at the same time. We just didn't prepare them. So I walked by my XO stateroom one day, and this is where I, I took my six months of training for granted, and the fact that the XO was sitting down with an ensign, going line by line through a, mess, uh, a message, explaining what each of the different line items meant, and the meanings, and how they all went to form to form a naval message. And there's just one of those things I'm like, Wow, I, I assumed that they knew that, but they didn't because that wasn't one of the things. They had to go to a box, you know, pull out a CD, and they kind of told them a story, and then they'd go try to figure that out throughout the ship while they're doing their job, while they're trying to become a division officer, leading 30 different people who, by the way, probably have more schooling and training when the day they walked on board the ship than they did. It, for years, we, we struggled with the, the concept that you wouldn't send an aviator to a, to a squadron with a CD-ROM and say, hey, get in the airplane and learn how to fly through on-the-job training. Yet it was good enough for surface warfare officers to do it. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that, you know, that's, that's a point you know, we've had in uh, proceedings today uh, over the last month or so. We, we've had 
a couple pieces written by aviators who talked about the need for uh, essentially a SWO flight school, right? Get back to a SWA school that includes a lot of time, not just a little bit of time, but a lot of time underway on a YP, you know, other small uh, vessels to get time and, and learn that relative motion, learn and understand, get the seat of the pants feel for how a ship operates. What's it mean when you say ahead one third, two thirds? What's it mean when you say, you know, right standard rudder versus right full rudder? You know, what, what does it feel like when you drive a ship and when you back down and those kinds of things? Um, and, and as you said, you would never send an aviator to a, right directly to a squadron and expect them to learn how to fly an F-18 on their own with some OJT and the skipper helping them out, right? They, they go through <laughs> right. primary school, they go through ground school, then a primary school, then they go through advanced jet trainers or advanced helicopters. So there's a, I mean, it's a two-year pipeline. They go through the RAG. And, right, yeah, and then they go through, extensive. right, and so... But we're not. We don't do that for swoes. No. Well, so Tom, was that no. was that change made strictly for budgetary reasons, or what? What was the driver there? Well, you mentioned urban legend earlier. There was an urban legend in there that uh, uh, an ensign who had gone through uh, and had an influential um, uh, uncle uh, made a comment that, "Hey, that was six months I absolutely wasted." Um, but uh, I think that's mostly urban legend. Um, I, I think it was a budgetary thing because, you know, you, as you look at it, six months is right at the end. You know, six months is the PCS window. I can keep them there for six months on FPM per diem. Um, so, okay, I got that. And I think we were also – it was that era when we, when we as service and, you know, other places were, were looking at computer-based training. And we all figured out that, hey, this really isn't working. Uh, we're not getting the quality. We're not getting the understanding um, there's something that, that this job requires that requires hands-on training. Now, you can still do a lot of stuff through computer-based learning, and I'm not trying to in any way um, say that we shouldn't continue to use computer-based training, but there's a lot of the stuff that, you know, when I, when, same thing probably with aviation, when I learned uh, engineering, I went hand over hand through a system. Um, I, I put my hand on every single valve. Um, I learned where every pipe was. I learned where every piece of equipment was, how they all connected to the system, then how they connected to the greater uh, engine plant. And that's how I learned it. You just can't really do that on a CD-ROM. I can visualize it, got it, then give, but until you can actually look at it, I don't, I don't think you have that same kind of comprehension. So, Tom, uh, what was your so, first ship? What was the first ship you went to after getting that uh, engineering training? I went to uh, USS Shreveport, uh, LPD-12, which uh, was a shocking experience uh, flying into Philadelphia one time. And I go, hey, there's an LPD there. Hey, there's my first ship. It's gone. So, so you're but, officially uh, a graybeard was, now. <laughs> she is in the graveyard. Um, so I, the... Uh, um, how old was the ship yeah, when you arrived I, at I it? I walked into that engineering plant. I knew how to light, a, light um, the fire for the boiler and things like that. So... It was it was a great great training. So how is how is the pipeline? Uh, do we think going to get modified uh, as a function of the findings and the recommendations of uh, the various panels that are looking at, um, you know, the fallout from McCain and Fitzgerald? Well, I think that I think we fundamentally, and this is in my opinion, I, I haven't read things and, and read what other people have written. I think we're going to go back and we're going to evaluate okay well the six weeks that we have now and then the three weeks that 
the division officers get after their first tour um, just isn't really working. They're not getting the – don't get me wrong. I had – I you know, when I was in command, I had some phenomenal um, division officers who were well uh, prepared and then studied really hard to be able to get where they are. And they, they did go through the new six-week uh, basic division officer course, or BDOC, um, but there were still a lot of things that they just didn't know. So what happens is, is they, they focus on learning how to be, instead of look, focusing on how to become great ship drivers first, they're learning the role of a division officer in the administrative side that they don't already know. So we need, I think what they're going to do is they're going to find, hey, we need to plus up the navigation side especially. If you look at, at what has come through, a lot of it has dealt with navigation. Um, we're going to have to teach the systems um, we're going to, you know, AIS is one of the things that's really come out. We've, you know, when we're entering and exiting ports or in high, high concentration, uh, uh, concentration areas, we're going to turn AIS from a receive mode into, into a transmit mode so people can see us as well. Um, but we need to have more training before they show up to be able to do that. I hope, and my expectation is that they were going to do that. We're going to put more navig emphasis on navigation training. Um, I'll be honest, you know, coming out of college, having taken a navigation class as a sophomore, the refresher that I got in that six-month training was phenomenal. Um, I remember actually going through, I had to plot a you know, course leaving port in San Diego and going out to sea, uh, and it, it, all, everything that I learned through that entire process was very, very helpful. And very, the fact that it was current in my mind when I showed up on ship, it wasn't, okay, something I learned as a sophomore, okay, I don't remember how to do this, i got to relearn how to do it again. So we're going to, I think we're going to go back to those things. I think we're going to spend more time in ship handling. Um, the, the experience that you get talking on the radio, that's one of the things that, you know, came out of the reports also, is we just don't talk on the radio. To be honest, most of the, excuse me, most of the uh, merchant world doesn't talk a lot on the radio. Um, because they only have, you know, if you're in the open ocean, they usually only have like one person on the bridge. But hey, guess what? I gotta try, especially in those in those high concentration areas when they do have more people and there's there's question out there. I need some. I need to talk to somebody and make sure that I'm they and I both understand the same picture. And we need people are just afraid to do it, and we need to have more practice doing that. We need, need to have practice doing maneuvering boards, so that I can say, hey, I need to come right. You know, we have the Great. The ARPA, which is the uh, integrated uh, radar system that we have up on the bridge, which is a commercial off the show, I'm sorry, commercial program, uh, I can push into it and predict if I turn to this course, it'll change the closest point of approach that I have to this. But your maneuvering board is what backs that up, and that's how you learn by d doing the maneuvering board so that you understand that, hey, this is what the computer's doing. We need to have more of those fundamentals, and I think that's what they're going to begin doing. They need to have specialized training, too. Um, so, for example, engineers need to know what an engineer does. Um, they need to know what a plant the plant looks like before they just show up, and now they're responsible for leading people and running the maintenance. And so I think that's where we're going to go. And reading the different um, the reports and things, we're going to start emphasizing that. And I don't know how long they're going to decide to, to change SWAS to or, or you know, if they're going to or if they're just going to relook at what they've got. But I think we we've recognized the fact that we're not preparing our people right and that they have to focus too much, especially in the 100-hour work weeks that we've talked about, 
they're focusing too much of their time on learning some of the fundamentals that they should already have when they get there instead of learning how to ship drive. We need to, we need to become proficient ship drivers. Um, and I don't, and I think we've lost that. I think that if you look at a SWO's career right now, a SWO spends, um, their first tour, which is two years, first tour ship driving. Well, what does that mean? That means that you get to the ship and you spend the first couple months as the conning officer learning how to drive it. And then you move up to the junior officer of the deck where now you are talking on the radio. You're, you're doing maneuvering, more maneuvering boards. You're making recommendations to the officer of the deck. Um, and you do that for a little bit. And then you have to go do other parts of your qualification so that you can become officer of the deck. You've got to go down to combat. You spend four to five months down to combat, or you know, it depends on you know if you're operational or not. If you're not operational, then this whole timeline's out the window. Spend three, four months down in combat becoming a combat information watch officer because that's part of your qualification. Well, when you do that, that takes away from your ship driving time. And then, of course, once you get the – you can't just take them directly out of the watch. You've got to let them have some proficiency in that watch by themselves because that's really – you learn 70% of what you have when you're standing under instruction, but that last 30% is when you actually have a stick in your hand and, hey, this is me flying this aircraft. It's me driving this ship, whatever it is. That's when you really learn, hey, this is – this is how this operates. And they send them back up to the bridge. So really, then they get qualified. <laughs> and we, uh, so out of that entire, if you were operational for most of that time frame, it's now taking you 12 to 14 months to get officer that qualified. Stand it for a couple months. Hope you don't go into a maintenance period where it totally messes up all your timeline. And then we got <laughs> Because we've placed such an emphasis on getting your engineering officer the watch qualification now during your first tour so that you can line yourself up for the best second tour, we send them down to engineering. So realistically, you spend a couple months being officer the deck as your first tour, and, and that time is so limited because you're all trying to learn everything else. Let's train everybody up front on, on the administrivia stuff on the fundamentals, on the foundation, build the foundation before they get to the ship and move forward. Hey, Tom, one of the questions or a recommendation that has come out in uh, from several uh, articles written for us for proceedings today in the last couple of months after the you know Fitzgerald and McCain collisions, a number of, uh, of people, both uh, Navy and also some, some folks who were dual qualified as Navy surface warfare officers and um, merchant mariners, merchant master mariners. Um, they, the recommendation that uh, Navy surface warfare officers ought to get the, the full Coast Guard civilian mariner qualifications just like uh, our Coast Guard officers do or just like uh, merchant Marines do. Uh, what do you think about that? I would I, not having – I mean, I – I've looked a little bit into what the requirements are. It's been a little while since I actually looked back, but I would fully support that. Um, the you know my friends who come out of Kings Point, it's amazing the uh, the skills that they have, and um, yeah, their ship handling skills, their understanding of of the environment, their understanding of engineering, of that whatever, their understanding is is great. And then that's that's part of their curriculum. Um, I don't think that they come out with their licenses, uh, but I know like my Kings Point friends still have to maintain their licenses. Yeah, and they yeah, they spend I think is it standard, one, is it a full year that they spend underway on a merchant ship, 
or, or at least six months. I mean, they, they have a prolonged period away from the campus where they're on a ship apprenticing as a mariner. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, um, and then, of course, they have the King's Pointer, which is, you know, the ship that they have there. Um, and actually, a friend of mine from NOAA, when he went into NOAA, he had to spend several months on the King's Pointer uh, just learning how to drive ships and things like that before he actually became a NOAA officer. So, Interesting. Yes, yeah. I think that would be awesome. I think it's, you know, there's a certification process out there for a reason. Um, I don't know what it would take personally for us to go to transition over. I've kind of looked at, you know, the captain one. When I was captain of a ship, I kind of looked at the what the requirements were for the, to become a captain of a, of a vessel. Um, well, yeah, I think that something along that line, I think we need to come up with you know, for aviation, you guys have NATOPS requirements. Um, now, I know those are completely separate than the Coast Guard requirements, but it's a standard that you have to maintain, a qualification level that you have to renew to be able to remain proficient. When you when you go away from the community, and correct me where I'm where I'm wrong here, uh, War, but the uh, when you go away for from the community for you know your tours or whatever, you come back and you immediately go to the refresher squadron um, to get all your NATOC qualifications back up to date before you can actually go do certain missions or fly or, you know, carrier quals or whatever it is. Am I correct on that? That's absolutely correct. And it's tailored for each. I mean, it's basically cat one through four based on where you are in your career progression and your number of flight hours and how long it's been. But yes, it's very quantitative and uh, the matrix is kind of watertight, you know, so uh, you're right. You're exactly right there. So each of your squadrons, though, has a NATOPS officer who is responsible for for check flights and for making sure everybody's qualifications and like that are up to date. Is that correct? Yeah, every mission area, every everything from just basic, you know, landing and taking off to you know the various depending on what kind of airplane, various mission areas. So yeah, it's all it's all uh, measured and and tracked. Um, you know, and this was actually Admiral Dunn's point in, in a, in a proceedings today article, um, about, he was basically saying, why are there no aviators on any of these review boards for the two collisions at sea? Uh, meaning that aviators understand the consequences of, um, not hawking a training pipeline or letting things atrophy better than any other warfare, especially arguably. Because, because the they consequences learned, yeah. are, are dire. Well, not only are the consequences dire, but the consequences were dire for the community in the 60s and yeah. 70s, right? Yeah. There were hundreds of naval aircraft lost and pilots yeah, lost. Yeah, so you mentioned NATOPS, Tom, and, and so that didn't exist before 1950, I want to say 53, 55 time frame, and the Naval Safety Center and all the other things where this became a, a regimented and, uh, you know, across the entire Navy and Marine Corps thing. And you can see, you know, as the editor of Approach Magazine in the early 90s uh, at the Naval Safety Center, and uh, I was very much schooled by the old guard there about how the mishap rates went down precipitously, uh, you know, at when NATOPS was created and, and continued to go down because of technology. And But the programmatics, too, have gotten better and better. So this is what uh, we imagine will happen as we make the flight school analogies to uh, the fallout. The the last question, Tom, because we're getting tight on time here. Um, do do you think that um, the fleet is never mind what we're going to do? You know, in the out years, in terms of training tracks or bringing back real swaths and that sort of thing. As we sit here now, are we at risk 
in a similar way that created the the sort of uh, mishaps that we have suffered in recent months? Or have we solved the immediate things to make sure that that doesn't happen in the near term? Uh, I, I hate to say it's a case-by-case basis, but it really kind of is. Um, I think the, you know, if you look at operational pauses that we've had, you know, in aviation, um, for, for instance, when an MV-22 goes down, there's an operational pause for, for an extended amount of time to, to review everything. And, and we had 24 hours um, for a ship that's out there deployed. I don't think that that's realistically a long enough time. Um, and I think it's going to come to – I think we've – unfortunately, there's a heightened awareness in the fleet now that, hey, I, I need to make sure that I micro look at every single detail um, – because I don't want to be that, that next person. And I think, unfortunately, fear probably is the thing that's driving us now rather than good practices. Um, I'm not, I'm, I've been almost two years removed from driving ships, so I can't say, you know, that's how it was. Um, I didn't, when I drove ships, um, it, was, it was something that's kind of been ingrained in me since I was a J.O. Uh, way back when was those, those best practices and, on ship handling, you know, double checking things, and I think that there's an article that we, the editorial board, recently looked at that I uh, don't think has been published yet, that talked about the uh, double checking and triple checking a captain did one time, regards to something, and it still kind of went bad, um, but I, we did that out of practice, and it was one of those things that we learned, and it wasn't out of kind of fear, um, and I think that. We just need to take that real – wardrooms need to take that step back, not for 24 hours, um, but need to, to bring people in and just say, okay, hey, listen to all ranks. What are we doing? What can we do better? What are we missing? Um, you know, the, the emphasis now on, on near-miss collisions or other things like that, yeah, okay, let's, let's sit back and look at this, Okay. Where did we go wrong? Let's break down amongst ourselves that chain of events um, and empower people to step up. Um, I remember when I was at an incident, I was, <laughs> I was the helm safety officer, and we were in a formation picture uh, for the strike group, and all of a sudden a submarine was coming right to T-bone us. And, uh, and I was the only person who, could, who saw it. And, of course, I spoke out because that's what I had been trained to do. Um, we need to make sure that that same training, and of course we missed that there was no coaching or anything like that, um, but we need to make sure that people know that they can do that. And that all starts in the wardroom. The command, that starts with a command presence and works its way down. People people being afraid to call a commanding officer because um, they don't want to wake him up or they don't want to look stupid or anything like that. You know, The thing that I always told my, my officer's decks when they got qualified, the last thing I said before they walked out the door and took the watch, I said, I am always on watch. So don't call me to to witness a collision. Give me a choice in this. I said, <laughs> don't be scared. <laughs> don't call me to witness. No, no. <laughs> I like it. If you have a question, call me. Uh, right. Hey, I, Tom. Tom, this has been exactly, great. We're, if, you, we're, if, if you ever have a doubt, if the doubt is there, whether or not you should call me, call. you're calling me. Right. So right. that's that's what we need to make sure is installed that throughout the fleet. Awesome, awesome. So our guest has been Naval Institute Fellow Commander Tom Ulmer. Tom, thanks for joining us this week. We'll see you around Beach Hall here, hopefully in the very near future. Absolutely. Editorial board meeting next week. 
Ah, okay. Yes. We'll see you then. Yeah. And uh, one, one more, just a highlight for uh, on Monday's uh, Defense Forum Washington, our conferences folks from the Naval Institute putting on uh, in downtown D.C. You at can, the museum? At the museum. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's free. It's free to anyone who wants to uh, attend, members, non-members. Uh, and uh, the conversation that we've been having with Tom this afternoon will continue with three of our very popular proceedings authors, Kevin Iyer, Jerry Roncolato, and John Cordell, who have written a lot about this topic in the last uh, six months. Um, and they're going to have a panel discussion moderated by our CEO, Admiral Daly, on where does the surface warfare need, surface warfare community need to go, uh, you know, now in 2018 and beyond, uh, having you know, learned the, the very, very um, bloody lessons of uh, Fitzgerald and McCain and, uh, and the not-so-bloody lessons of uh, some of the, the recent groundings and, and other incidents. So it uh, should be a great panel discussion, museum on Monday morning, the 4th of December. At what time? Eight o'clock. Eight o'clock. Eight, uh, eight, eight or eight thirty. It kicks off. Okay. okay. Get there at eight. It starts at eight thirty. All right. All right. Thanks again, yeah, Tom. At eight, uh, absolutely. Thanks for Warden Bill. Okay. All right, everybody. That'll do it for this week of the Proceedings Podcast. Join us here again next week and listen to us on SoundCloud and USNI.org. Um, as always, victory begins at, at the, the U.S. Naval Institute. Institute. Amen. We'll see you next time. Amen.